All right, everybody, welcome to the Deal Gen Podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and business titans about a wide range of topics and experiences. The Deal Gen Podcast is brought to you by Deal Gen Partners. Deal Gen Partners is the leading deal origination service on the market for private equity buyers. Deal Gen Partners combines their M&A and private equity experience with a proprietary method of multi-channel marketing services that they call the Bird Dog. This unique recipe generates transaction-ready deals at an unmatched pace and increases a private equity fund's chances of closing a deal by up to 10x. Reach out to DealGen Partners before you begin searching for your next investment. All right, guys, in this episode of the DealGen Podcast, I spoke with Raleigh Williams. Raleigh is an experienced entrepreneur who had a lot of success um, in his, you know, early on in his career, starting and selling uh, businesses, specifically trampoline parks. And, you know, um, what he's learned from that experience is, you know, and what we talk about on the show is not only what drove him to become an entrepreneur, but um, the successes and the pitfalls that he's learned along the way to launch his most recent um, endeavor, which is going to be Deal Maven, and it's going to be a platform that links buyers and sellers together, specifically finding the right buyers and then bringing sellers forward to basically be able to pick, um, you know, the right potential acquirer for their company. So, really looking forward to, um, you know, watching and and, and watching Deal Maven become um, what I think it's intended to be and what I think Raleigh is capable of building it out to be. But at the same time, I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode because there's a lot of good clips in here. So, thanks. Raleigh Williams, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm great, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's good to have you here. It's good to have you here. I know we've connected a couple times, you know, off off of a podcast, um, you know, and, and are looking to start doing things together. We're both kind of swimming in the same space, um, yeah. which will be fun to talk about right now, which is kind of that M&A world, you know, buying and selling. Um, so I'll start you off with that. You know, it seems like in the 2023 landscape, you know, with macro factors, that are in place right now, you know, the world is, uh, is a little upside down in some areas and, you know, buying things might seem a little crazy to investors, selling things might seem pretty hard for sellers, raising money might seem hard because, you know, of interest rates and stuff like that. But talk to me about, you know, personally, you're a guy who sold companies, you're a guy who has bought companies uh, and, and invested, and you're a guy who actually helps facilitate those transactions too. So what are you seeing right now in 2023 um, in regards to the landscape? We can kind of start off from the the buying perspective, investing perspective. Sure. I think um, it's it's funny. I, I know a guy that is a real estate developer. Um, he tries to do real estate development. And um, when, you know, 2019, 2020, he was always like, you know, I just don't feel like these deals are penciling. Everything feels so overpriced. It's too expensive. I don't know how anyone's getting deals done right now. And I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and he's like, you know, there's just so much uncertainty in the market and, you know, it doesn't, it feels like everything's going to go down. And so I, as I've had a relationship with him over, over five or seven years, it, there's always uncertainty in the future and he's always found a way to use that as an excuse to not do deals. <laughs> yeah. And, um, 
I, I tend to be naturally kind of a perma bear. Like I'm usually pretty bearish about what the future looks like. And I, and, and so I just try to go knowing that that's my default mindset. I just try to find things that I'm excited about despite that. And perma bears are right once every 10 years, but there's still ways to make money. Um, even if there's a, a, a decline, I think um, what I'm seeing high level is, um, you know, I, depending on kind of the sophistication of the buyer, I think deals that deals that used to make sense um, make less sense now. You know, when you have treasury bills and kind of risk-free rates rising in terms of where you can allocate your capital, um, you know, there's a higher expectation for returns to, you know, the risk premium that you're going to take to be in a private deal or something that's less liquid than T-bills, whether you're in the real estate space or the business buying space. Um, um, I think the smart money, I'm, I'm seeing smart money move more and more into more hybrid structures, kind of mezzanine debt, you know, taking more of a debt position with an equity upside than full yep. equity side. Yep. Um, I, I see that happening more and more. Um, and I think, I think the people who end up getting hurt are people that want to run one specific playbook and aren't open to, you know, figuring out structures and ways to make, to make deals happen. And it may, it may look different than the way deals look like in 2020. Um, you know, in, in 2020, when it was when when everything was kind of a little bit crazy, a lot of people wanted asset-backed investments. Um, and I know me personally, like where I'm, you know, I I always say like that's an interesting opinion, but tell me what's in your portfolio. What are you actually doing? <laughs> Not what are you advising? Like where are you actually have skin in the game? Right. And. For, for me, in terms of the things that I look at, I like businesses currently that are smaller than the deals that I used to do um, and very asset like, like I like online digitally based businesses, business acquisitions, content sites, um, courses, membership things, things that no one is really looking at talking about conventionally. Um, I like things that don't have a lot of CapEx required and not a lot of fixed costs associated with it. Um, and so that's kind of high level what I'm actually doing today with my dollars right now. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I going back to, you know, being kind of that, that investor that, you know, like you said, you've heard for years now, um, finding every excuse not to do a deal. You know, I think that there's, there's certainly something to be said about that, right? You gotta be, I mean, at the end of the day, the best investors I think are, ones that limit the downside as much as possible, you know? So they always look at, you always hear, um, you know, the Warren Buffett's of the world who, you know, they, they focus primarily on the downside. What's the worst case scenario here? And then work backwards from there to figure out whether or not, you know, they, they're going to invest their money the right way into the right things. But at the same time, I think the best investors in the world are also the ones that are most flexible and the most, you know, um, open-minded to change and yeah. realize that, you know, their macroeconomic, um, political things that are always going to be going on no matter what the circumstances. And sometimes it's going to be a bull market and things are going to be running 
and you can run that direction faster. Sometimes it's going to be a bear market and you're going to be fighting some headwinds, but no matter what, you can always find a way to move forward. You can always find a way to, you know, look at how you structure deals differently. You can always find a way to, um, like you said, going from being an equity investor to now, now maybe we're going to be more of a lender because there's more opportunity in that from a debt perspective and it's a safer investment. Um, but I think that the people who are open-minded in times like these to switching, they don't have to shut their business down. They don't have to lay off, you know, let's say you're a big investment organization. You don't have to lay off employees just because, you know, the macroeconomic landscape isn't um, what it used to be. You can pivot. You can, you know, um, look at ways. All right, what's our current portfolio doing? Is there is there room to raise, let's say it's real estate. Is there room to raise rent? Is there room to cut out expenses on things that we were paying? You know, so my point is, you know, I, I always, when I'm, when I'm talking to investors, um, people who are buying things right now, you know, a lot of my clients are private equity investors and they're not slowing down, you know, one iota. I think they have to be careful about where they put their capital, you know, and, and into what they're putting their capital. But when the right opportunities come, they're still following those, you know, kind of traditional systems of evaluating a deal and figuring out, you know, yeah, maybe two years ago they were going to offer 10 million. Now they're offering nine or eight, but they're still offering, they're still making offers. They're not stopping, you know? And I don't think in any, you know, I don't think in any field, um, unless something's going completely haywire, you should let like a macro thing stop you. Um, in your tracks, you know, you should just try and figure out, okay, this is something I have no control over. How do I power through it? Yeah, there's, there's a good, one of my favorite investing books is it's called how I lost, how I lost a million dollars. Um, and it's about this guy who is crushing it. He, he used to work for the Chicago mercantile exchange, trading commodities and stuff. And, um, he had this trade that he was really excited about and, um, he kind of convinced himself of this kind of investment thesis that he was going to move forward on and every piece of information that he was getting, you know, call it, say it was a corn trade. And so he would get kind of this counter piece of information that, you know, the weather patterns weren't looking good for the corn yields, whatever. And every piece of information he would fight against it. And kind of the, the overall premise of the, of the book is that, is is to have strong convictions strong convictions loosely held and when you convince yourself of a story on what you're going to do with your money it's really hard to pivot away from that story particularly if you're very vocal with the story and you know I just said I like I like asset light internet businesses right and then when as I start getting information that cuts against why internet businesses are a great investment. I start pushing against it because I've committed myself to this story that this is what I'm going to do from now on, even as the information starts mounting sure. against me. And so the, this, the wealthiest guy that I personally know that I have a great relationship with, when I ask him what he's doing with his money, where he, you know, what he sees, how he's reading the tea leaves, he's never told me one time what he's doing because he doesn't want to get someone's counter opinion that he has to then start defending himself. And he also doesn't want to persuade me to have me lose money. And, you know, I start trying to follow him into deals that he knows a lot more about that, that I don't. And so I, I always look at 
again, similar to how do you minimize the downside? How, how do you do a deal that if you're right, you get rich and if you're wrong, you don't go broke. Um, and how do you stay nimble and open? You know, back in 2020, people were wanting to get into deals because they felt like inflation, inflation was a tax on their cash. Right. And they wanted to put their cash to work mm -hmm. and, you know, in a pretty short order, it feels like the correction that will come will be a greater correction than what inflation, you know, that it's smarter to hold on, hold on to cash than to deploy it and kind of wait and see. And, um, and so I think just learning how to, you know, know what a, know what a good deal smells like and be willing to move on it despite uncertainty. Cause it's always, it's always going to be there unless you're doing T bills, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I think, um, I love that analogy from that book and, I think that it's, you, you got to be open-minded in both ways, right? You got to be open-minded to the idea that the things around you are changing, but you also have to be, you know, um, open-minded to the idea that maybe there's a better way at looking at what you're doing. Like you said, you know, once you convince yourself and once you tell a story on, and you convince yourself of a story on what you should do, then it's very hard to go the other direction. And, and, and once you're already in it, it's even harder. You know, once you've actually, maybe you've started, maybe it's already started making money. And now the idea of shutting it off or stopping it is just like in your brain, you can't, you, you're like, I can't go back, you know, and right. in reality, you know, you probably don't want to find yourself in those scenarios. You probably want to find yourself, you know, making those investments where again, and you're in the ones that you're telling me that you're actively making, seems like you have some control over the growth. Mm -hmm. You have control over, you know, the asset. Um, a lot of it is in your hands. And because it's, you know, not a lot of CapEx up front, um, if something were to go wrong, if something were to shut down, if something were to, you know, come out of nowhere and um, be, you know, put a disadvantage on what you're doing, it's not going to wipe you out by any means. It's not, it, it is probably one of those things where if you needed to stop, you know, one particular investment, you could because you're in it for less than, you know, you're not going above your means. You're probably diversifying your portfolio. Um, and that's where I think, you know, the best kind of VC or, or, or private equity investors also that, you know, there's diversification within their portfolio. They're going to make bets yeah. that don't always win, you know, but they if they make 50 bets and two of them don't go according to plan, you know, it's fine to have that kind of in place where it's like, hey, these are heading south, you know, let's have a system in place where we can get back as much money we can, exit that particular position, and then refocus on where we're winning um, rather than go all in on one company and have that happen. And now it's like you're in a position where you might not be able to crawl back. Yeah, I, and I, I, the way that I personally minimize that risk is I just focus, and again, it's not, it's not, brain surgery to anyone who's in the private equity space. I just focus on what the cash flows of the business are. And I, I price in zero equity appreciation and the deals that I look at and, you know, what does, what does the kind of post transaction capital stack look like and what are the cash flows look like? So I typically try to bring very little, if almost no leverage to a deal uh, leverage creates weakness in every circumstance, you know, you can't, 
um, something with zero leverage. You don't get as good of returns, but you don't go out of. It's really hard to go out of business if you don't have either on the balance sheet leverage or off balance sheet leverage with leases and vendors and working capital and revolvers and all those things. All those things can be, you know, growth drivers, expanders, which are great, but they're also. It only takes being in a deal one time <laughs> with a with a heavy lease or a heavy personal guarantee, you know, uh, being on the wrong side of a piece of debt. It just takes doing that one time to never do it again. And, you know, I'll take, I'll take um, slower growth, more consistent growth, trying to find businesses and assets that I have a long time horizon in um, and just go slow and steady um, slow and steady wins the race is kind of the, the approach that I've, that I've tried to take personally, individually. Right. And, right. um, you know, when, whenever I'm in an advisor capacity and someone's like, it's, it's just so easy for people to tell themselves the positive, the positive story of doing a deal, um, of, of how great it can be if they ultimately buy the thing. And a lot of times they'll put pressure on themselves, not private, you know, private equity, if they're raising money, they have to deploy it. Otherwise, you know, that's the business that they're in, but sure. on, on the more kind of on the smaller level, um, I just, I, I, you know, uh, doing a deal is like getting married. It's great to be in a great marriage, but it's better to be single than to be in a bad marriage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, that's a great way to put it. It's a great way to put it. I, I, and when you've done a bad deal, it's like being in a bad marriage and it's hell and it's not fun. And you got to, you know, dig in and figure out how to get yourself out of it. Um, yep. which isn't great. Agreed. Agreed. So, you know, in our previous conversations, we've talked about deal maven, the idea that you have, you know, when it comes to building out that platform, um, and you know, we don't have to get into the specifics of what, um, you know, deal maven is going to be right this second, unless you want to. But my question for you was more going to be around the M and a process. So you, again, you, you've been on both sides of, of that coin, right? You've been on seller, you've been a buyer. Um, what holes did you see in the M and a process that led you to want to create something like deal maven? Um, yeah, so I, so I've been a lawyer in the deals, which didn't give me great visibility into what holes, you know, you're just, you're just kind of transacting in an advisory capacity. Um, when I, when I was selling my first businesses, which were entertainment businesses, trampoline parks, escape rooms, brick and mortar businesses, um, the gap that I saw, I, I did the transactions myself. I didn't hire an advisor. I interviewed multiple. I talked to some bankers and I felt um, like I wanted to do the deals myself. And so the, the gap that I saw in that process on the sell side was I would get inquiries, kind of inbound inquiries. And it was really hard for me to vet the quality of the buyer pool. Um, one inquiry versus another, you know, depending on what, and again, these were in, in aggregate, it ended up being a $26 million transactions, but, but it happened over multiple transactions and they were usually two to $3 million deals, you know, that, that we did over time outside of one big real estate deal that we did. Yeah. And, um, so from a seller, I spent a lot of time talking to people that, you know, want 
no money down, all seller finance, you know, just, just kind of tire kickers that were a waste of time. Some people wanted an SBA process, but I, I felt like I, I wasted a lot of time talking to buyers that weren't very qualified and probably in, you know, and in, in a, a, a couple of times almost lost deals because I misallocated my time and I didn't spend the right time with the right people. And um, in terms of people that could actually get a deal done and had the capital to do it. And so I felt like on the sell side, having visibility into who the buyer is, was a frustration of mine. Um, on the, after I've sold, after I sold those deals and I moved into a more buyer capacity, um, you know, I'm an, I'm much more of a net buyer than I am a net seller. And, you know, I think every, every buyer has the problem of deal flow. <laughs> like that's like, that's the big elephant in the room is how do you actually get deals coming to you? And so what most people sure. do is they, you know, particularly someone like me who doesn't come from a, a really organic marketing background. Um, you know, I spent five, $10,000 on a nice website with the background of New York and we do deals and you work on the copy and what's the criteria and, and you do all this stuff to try to generate interest and potential limited partners and also, you know, obviously getting deals done, um, getting inbound inquiries, but you have this site that kind of sits out in the middle of nowhere and it's not tied to anything and it's not generating any traffic. And so I, you know, in, in law, I learned the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. And I was very frustrated that I had the gold to do the deals, but I could not find the deals. <laughs> um, and, and so that was kind of, that was kind of the problem that I set out to solve on both sides is on a sell side, you know, 50% of deals fall through post LOI, uh, 90% of businesses that are on market right now, um, is, you know, whatever on market is termed, particularly on the SMB side, you know, sub $10 million enterprise value deals, 90% of those deals fall through. Um, and so deal maven, deal maven what set out to try to solve that. And, and kind of the way that I circled around solving that was, um, focusing on the buyer, focusing, focusing on a platform that focuses on what the buyer, who the buyer is, instead of what the particular asset is, who the buyers are, what's their criteria, what are they looking for? Do they have the capital vetting the buy side of the marketplace? Because buyers are kind of the, the things that don't change that often. And then, you know, on the sell side, whether it's a broker, or an individual entrepreneur, I, I also felt like when I was looking at potentially raising growth capital or not not really knowing what I wanted to do, you know, from the entrepreneur's perspective, sourcing that capital, whether it's exit capital or growth capital or debt capital, whatever, whatever it looks like, how, how do you find the people that are willing to transact that and, and what, what their, what their criteria is? I don't want to waste a bunch of time. You know, if you're a, if you're growth capital for biopharma, like you're not going to give me money for my trampoline park. And so I don't need to send a deck and do your, criteria and like put in your inbound inquiry. And so that's, that's what deal Maven has, has kind of morphed into. And, and that was really what we started out trying to solve was my thesis is that buyers will get more deals. If there's one place that sellers can come to and kind of sort through a database of buyers, what they're looking for and how qualified are they? Yeah. Well, it does start with the buyer. You know, and that's that's where we start here at, at DealGen too. You know, it 
it's it's all about going out and finding the right buyers who we know are able to transact and willing to transact and they want to do a number of deals every year and then going and finding them the opportunities to um, hopefully invest in. And I think that, you know, what was that, what was that quote you said um, in law, you know, from the, about the gold? He who has the gold makes the rules. He who has the gold make the rules. I think it's, it kind of sums up what we've been focusing on right now too. You know, uh, my, my business partner came from the sell side. And, you know, he was like, you know, I, I'm working on two, maybe three. And if it's three, I'm, I have no free time deals at a time. And so when he's representing a seller, you know, he was like, you know, we, yes, there is at the, you know, the, the gold at the end of the rainbow is, uh, it could be a big pot, but, um, you know, a lot of the scenarios that you go through when you're trying to sell a company are out of your control, you know, especially if, you know, the buyer, um, you bring the right buyer to the table and then it ends up not being the right deal or they can't get financing or you, you know, you're in it with the seller for six months and then, you know, on, on month six, day two, um, you know, his spouse decides that they don't want to sell the company anymore. Maybe they should relook at it in a year from now. And so you put all this work in and now that got pulled, you know, the, the rug just got pulled from underneath you. You know, so he was saying, you know, it, when we were starting deal gen, it's like, what's, let's control the money. Let's control the buy side of things. Let's approach the market as the buyer. Let's approach sellers as, Hey, we're here to buy you. You know, we're not asking you for anything. We're going to, we want to buy your company. And, or, you know, you approach the intermediaries of the world, the, the investment bankers, the M&A advisors and say, Hey, we're in the market to buy this. And it's a lot friendly, friendlier of a conversation, you know, at the, especially at the beginning where it's like, Hey, you're looking to sell something. We're looking to buy it. Let's see if we can figure it out in the middle. Um, but I think that your platform, you have the hundred percent, the right idea. You know, if you were to get, let's say you had a faucet of deal flow where you, you had sellers that wanted to be on it and they wanted to put their thing on it. Well, if there's nobody that's out there that's qualified to buy it. You know, you get a bunch of trampoline parks and then you have a bunch of high net worth individuals that come from, like you said, biotech, you know, that's not really matching up anybody. You know, it's just, it's just sellers right. and buyers and, there's no, there's no, nothing in the middle. So I think if you go about it from, Hey, let me build out this platform. That's very user-friendly and get the buyers to be interested in it and then start slow, you know, knowing what they're looking for, knowing that they're capable of buying it and then going out and bringing that forward, you know, it's just going to start to snowball. Cause the one thing that's going to get people on the platform is that they're going to, you know, knowing that deals are actually getting done on it. And that's, right. that's linking the better, the, the best buyers to the willing sellers. Right. Yeah. And, and I've seen it work. It worked for me individually. Actually, somebody came on to the, the deal that I bought at the end of last year, the kind of internet based business was a deal that, um, that she I don't know how she found Deal Maven because we're not really actively out promoting it yet. But she found Deal Maven. She listed her business, and she found me on Deal Maven, and she pinged me. You know, and and typically, you know, all other marketplaces, the buyer is the hunter. You know, and the owner of the asset is the hunted. And so, you as a buyer either have someone like Deal Gen that's going out and hunting for you, or you know, it's your job to go out and hunt every single day and reach out to these people. Um, and uh, and so it's it's trying to trying to give a tool to the sell side that allows them 
a different way to transact outside of just putting on the marketplace and receiving inbound inbound you know deals and then sorting buyers amongst amongst the masses you know and and who who really has a background and and it when you when you have that structure where you have more transparency on both sides of the deal it allows you to get more creative with the deal structure like you can do you can do a partial or a majority or you know a partial transaction a partial a partial purchase knowing um for instance i would have sold some i would have sold 20 or 30 percent of my trampoline park business to someone if i knew that they had an operating history in trampoline parks and that's what they did right sure. i wouldn't sell that same 30 percent to a lawyer who's looking for a passive investment in an asset right because it wouldn't have right. solved the problem and so right um it, it allows for deal structures that a lot of brokers, advisors, they don't, like I talk to a lot of business brokers that if there's a partner issue and one partner wants to buy the other partner out, a 50% deal, you know, brokers don't want to touch it. They don't want, you know, is it, you know, there's regulatory risk. It's a hassle to try to line it up. You got to build a new operate. You know, it's, it's a more complicated deal, but um, a lot of times it's deal. It's a deal that makes sense. Um, and can make economic sense on both sides if you can just get those parties to connect in the right in the right circumstance. Yep. You know, I love the strategy. I think that, you know, being able to be a seller and go on and, and see a giant list of potential buyers on there, sort through them, you know, categorically figure out, okay, does this person make growth equity investments? Are they a buyout firm? You know, are they how do they go about doing deals and then approaching the market? From that standpoint, you know, knowing that they might like what you have, if you're a consumer goods company, and this particular buyer you found, you know, makes minority investments into consumer goods companies, well, that you'd craft a deal differently than you would for the family office, like you said, that's looking to just purchase a, a slow-growing passive investment. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to be said around that. There's a lot to be. Um, but I think that approaching it that way, learning about the buyer, get, you know, building out their track record, showing the sellers that like, hey, here are your options, you know, for buyers in this particular space, is going to help facilitate uh, transactions. But it is going to bring more opportunities to the table. And you know, they could get us. They could get an offer from the the person that wants to buy thirty percent. They could get an offer from the person that wants to buy the whole thing, and then they can determine, you know, which one they might want to take, if any. Um, but just going to market blindly as like, Hey, I want to, you know, I'm looking for a buyer, um, might not help anybody because the qualifications are just always going to be different across the board. Um, so look, you, you know, trampoline parks, right. I, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but like how, you know, when you got into that business, you know, what drew you to that and what, what type of. I guess what drew you to that? Did you have a background in it prior to launching it? And then, you know, how did you personally look at that as an opportunity that you with your skill set could grow and eventually exit? Um, because you know, you operate you bought it, operated, sold it, you know, so someone who, you know, might not be familiar with that type of asset, you know, why did you choose that particularly? And how did you go about operating it to a point where you could exit? Yeah, I um at, at that time I was practicing law. I was doing mergers and acquisitions and I hated that job. I just couldn't stand, you know, I I I was a practicing lawyer at one of the biggest firms in the world. 
Um, and I lasted there about nine months. Um, and I, so the opportunity, I, a buddy sent me an article about the unbelievable, it was called, it was a market watch article. It said the unbelievably lucrative business of escape rooms. Prior to law school, um, my brother and I had started a trampoline park business that I decided I didn't want to run. We, we just started it randomly, like no background in it. We, my, my brother had a young kid and felt like there weren't, weren't a lot of places to take her in order to pass the time. Utah gets pretty cold in the winter. And so there weren't a lot of options. And so I started that with him prior to law school. I sold my interest to him to go to law school thinking I'm going to go be a big time lawyer. I hated practicing law. Um, and there was this new business type, you know, escape room thing we had kind of seen in that four years that the, the, the trampoline from a family of lawyers my dad's a lawyer there's a lot of lawyers in my family and so there was kind of this when the first location did well we thought let's tap the brakes and let's not really scale this thing the way that others did and so we didn't grow the way that we could have and we saw others come into the market and really start growing the trampoline bar business and then the escape room thing started to happen and we thought maybe this escape room thing is something that's less risk than the trampoline park business. Let's, let's see if there's something here. And I just hated practicing law. And so to me, I had no background in escape rooms. Um, I, I found a business in Europe that um, was pretty successful in the escape room business. And so I bought a license, basically a I basically bought their IP for the United States. I said, let me take all your rooms and designs and like, let me pay you to just know how to build these stupid puzzles. I don't know how to make locks go to new locks and whatever. Um, and so the idea was to come in, run the escape room business, and then the escape room business plus the trampoline park business was pretty synergistic. Um, and then we had basically people, you know, capital partners that were like, hey, let us put money in this and we'll go and operate our own. So that, was, that was kind of the, the background on, on how, it, how it all kind of started was I, I knew that I hated practicing law. <laughs> and so the opportunity cost of something failing was low because I knew I needed, I was going to quit and do something else. And it felt like, it felt like something that I had some, I didn't have a, a massive background on it. it. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a spreadsheet decision, I guess. It's not like I looked at a model and I said, you know, this thing could really take off. It was much more of an emotional decision of, right. yo, I hate, I hate what I'm doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so like, if you give me, like, I feel like I'm on a boat. Like if you give me, it doesn't have to be a cruise liner, like give me like a little log that I can jump to and like, I'll figure out, I'll hold on to the log and I'll figure out how to turn that into a canoe on a long enough time horizon. And then, um, um, you know, I think the thing that I try to recreate and the businesses that I invest in now is I, I think, I think if you have at least one person that is that pot committed to the growth of the thing that you're working on. Like, I think it's hard. It's really hard to fail at that. I think the way that most of these businesses end up getting messed up is entrepreneurs by nature are very scatterbrained, they're shiny object. And 
they start working on something and then their emotions get in the way and they start thinking that they want to work on something else. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a function of focus more than it is a function of economics. And so trying to incentivize people to stay focused on the thing, like I did and what, and that trample, you know, I, I focused on it exclusively for um, five years until I got to the point where I could feel myself wanting to focus on something else. I could feel myself not answering the calls as quickly from my general managers and from my insurance people. And from, you know, I could just feel, I could feel that the business was grinding on me yep. in a way that I hadn't previously. And that's kind of when I knew that it was time to start, you know, planning for the planning for the exit path before the PL started showing that I was checked out. You know what I mean? Uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of good advice in there. I think, you know, at, at the beginning when you're talking about how, I wasn't expecting that answer of like, hey, I was just burnt out from doing what I was doing. So I decided to just go in, you know, jump kind of headfirst into something I knew nothing about. Um, but there's a lot to be said about that. You know, if you have energy and desire and, you know, a, a level of commitment um, that you're not, it's bottled up inside you. Um, I think it, I think if, as long as that's focused in the right direction, you know, it can go a long way, especially if it's like, hey, I hate doing this. So like you said, just give me something else that I can pour, you know, all the time. I'll take all the time that I'm putting into this law job and then I'll take, you know, the passion and the, the energy I am not using right now because I hate law and combine them. It could be into anything, you know, I'm going to, you know, I have the willingness and desire to, to stick it, stick with it long enough to make it work. Um, you know, it's a good story because, you know, you hear a lot of businesses that get started from, someone's experience or they, you know, they, they had an experience in, in a particular industry and then they launched their own business that was taking advantage, you know, they saw a hole in the gap of an industry they already knew about. For you, it was just, you know, raw kind of entrepreneurial energy and latching it onto a growing industry and just making it work and figuring it out and doing it, um, you know, kind of doing it live. And, and <laughs> I, I like that. And then on the, on the flip side, I completely agree with, you know, as long as someone's focus is on growing the business and, and they have, I think it requires not only focus, but it requires a, they have the means and they have the permission of, you know, the mm-hmm. other parties that are involved to be able to grow it the way that they see it, how it needs to be grown, you know, the way it needs to be grown. From my experience, you know, with um, operating a business with three individuals, you know, I think that we both, we, we all kind of get tired of the daily operations of it because, you know, no one, the individual that was working on the business more than the rest of us, um, wasn't given really a long enough leash to be able to do the things they needed to do for the business to succeed. So they were allowed to do what they were doing on a daily basis to make sure the business doesn't fail. But when it came to like, hey, guys, we need to invest X amount of dollars into this process or, hey, guys, I think we should refocus all of our energy on this hole in the market that we're not filling right now. They didn't have we didn't really give them the resources to do that because we were just worried about a return and being able to stay afloat. And so it's someone's full attention who gets the process, gets the vision and can drive the boat there. But it's also they need the right equipment and they need the right boat to be able to drive. You know, if they, if they're not, 
if it's like, hey, we want you to make it here to here, but you have a paddle board and it's, you know, a, a, a thousand miles you have to cross. It's how the hell am I going to get there? I have no, you're not going to give me anything else to do. So I completely agree though. If, powered, you know, an empowered, dedicated person can make money doing almost anything. Yep. And, and I try in the deals because I, I, I don't like, I don't like doing deals where, you know, the operational onus of the business falls to me. So either, you know, if it's a buyout deal, then I got to find an operator who's going to run it and be excited about it. And I try to be overly generous on the front end in terms of I, I'm, I'm like almost exclusively economically driven. I care very little about contribution or, you know, making an impact on the world. It just doesn't, doesn't drive me. I just don't care. Right. And, right. Um, and so I try to make sure that the person who's, I, I try to understand the incentive of the operator who's going to, the person who's going to be the CEO, what is it that they actually want? If it's economics, great. I can speak that language very clearly. And I try to, I tried to align the incentives as clearly as possible. So that way they know that this opportunity is the best opportunity. I, they have to be excited and they have to think that it's going to be fun. And they have to know that this thing that they're working on will be their, their path to fulfill their dream. Whatever that dream is, if it's giving back to the children in Africa, I think that's great. W whatever, whatever it is, if it's contribution, if it's economics, if it's, you know, whatever the, whatever the driver of the person is, they have to know that they will meet that driver in their position as the CEO of the business and that I am there as a support person to help them achieve their dreams and achieve the, and for me, I try to be very clear that my intent is an economic intent. And, you know, if they want to retool and repivot the the direction of the business and that's going to meet my economic needs you know i i but i i've been i've been in situations where i felt handcuffed not from i've never felt handcuffed from capital partners but i have felt handcuffed from operating partners you know co-partners where you start a business together and um you know i i'm i always say you know one, show me the show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes, which I stole from Charlie Munger. And two, like he who has the strongest opinion wins and gets to do it. You know, so if we're looking at a website together and someone's like, you know, it really needs to be pink, XYZ, whatever. I think this branding's all wrong. I say, I love that for you. Go do it. Right. <laughs> you know, like you have a stronger opinion on what this branding should look like than I do. So it is now your assignment to make it how you want it because people ultimately it's, it's not about, you know, I, I, I can win, I can win with a C strategy, a, a C strategy with, with energy and that people are excited about. That's so much better than an, than an A plus plus strategy that, you know, the people who have to actually do the work, aren't stoked about, even though, you know, mentally they're on a spreadsheet, it makes the most sense. It just, it just doesn't, cause they're, cause they're kicking against the pricks every step of the way. And they end up not bringing the energy that that's needed. You're bringing up a lot of really good points here. Um, you know, and, and ones that I've experienced personally too, where, you know, you'll be, uh, let's say the, the loudest one in the room, you know, cause where businesses fail and where people get off, you know, not on the same page is when the loudest one in the room with the strongest opinion 
um, expresses the opinion and then wants someone else to do it. Yeah. And it's like that, work. that doesn't work because like what you're saying right now, you know, you want the website to be pink and blue and shiny. Like that's something that you really care about. I don't actually care if it's, if I want the website to be great and I want it to serve its purpose. I don't care about the schematics of it and how they lay out and everything like that. So if that's what you care about, go do it. But if you're going to say that's what you care about and then it's my job to go do it, I'm out. You know yeah. I mean? I can't, I'm not gonna, because I don't care. And that's what, that's what it all boils down to is like the person that's doing their job needs to be incentivized to do it and they need to care about doing it. And like you said, it needs to fulfill something, whether it's their end dream or whether it's just that in the moment passion of the website needs to be green or, you know, pink and blue. They need to understand internally why, and they need to, you know, use that and, and channel that energy towards getting it done and care about waking, you know, waking up every day, knowing that they're going to take the next step in order to achieve that. Uh, Versus if you're going to assign that job to someone who isn't incentivized and doesn't actually care, then what do you think is going to happen? You know, (laughs) it's going to just, it's going to crash and burn. And I've seen it before um, a few times and it ended up being the demise of, you know, some of the investments that I was involved in. But, you know, I do have one more, you know, kind of question for you. It's more of a um, just overall, you know, personal, personal question from, um, well, it doesn't have to do personally with you, but just more of an opinion based thing. So if you were to give advice to a smart driven college student right now, who's about to enter the real world, what would that advice be? And what advice should they ignore? That's a good question. So I used to, when I was in law school, I used to advise lost or college kids that were at the university of Chicago, which is a great undergrad program. They're all smart kids. Yep. Um, and, um, so I would see these kids that were wanting to get into law school. And so it was mostly, I was mostly advising them on the steps that they needed to do to, you know, get into the law school game and how to do well on, on the testing and all this crap. Um, I think the, the, the problem with college kids, there's a lot of problems with pro- college kids, but the problem with advising college kids, the advice that I try to give them as much as possible is to listen to fewer and fewer people's advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you have to start getting to a point where you start trusting your, your intuition and uh, that the people that are ahead of you really don't know what they're doing and they have no idea what they're doing with their lives, no matter how old they are and no matter how much it looks like they have their shit together. They don't know what they're doing. Everyone's right? always just trying to figure it out every day. Like they wake up every day. We still, everyone, no matter where you're at, they have checklists and they're trying to figure out, hey, what am I going to do today to add to whatever, you know? And so yeah, it, I agree. It, I was- I wish that when I was 22, you know, I'm 33 right now, I've made some money. And um, I wish that if I had known at 22, how uncertain I still am at 33, uh, like what I'm doing with my life. I, I wish that I looked at more people and be like, you guys don't know what you're fucking talking about. And like, and that's okay. But when you like when a college kid comes to me now, I say like, try to try to fail at the thing that you're the most scared to do this weekend. Like, 
because everyone, you know, for, you know, if you go to Harvard, you have this story that you've built. So that way everyone, everyone approves of what you're doing with your life. I'm going to go to Bain Capital and then I'm going to go to GSB Stanford Business School. And then I'm going to da 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 And you start casting the story of what your life is going to look like with all those things. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money going to great schools, working at great firms, and I was miserable every step of the way. And the shocking part of it was just how divergent it was from my expectation of that. And I wish that I had just, um, before I went to law school, and now I'm glad that I did, you know, everything works out. I have no regrets about the path that I took, but I wish that I had started failing at something. I, I was so scared to fail. I was yeah. so scared to be wrong about something, right. thinking that, that would, you know, forever take me off of the path that I ultimately wanted to, to be on, to be successful. Um, um, that I, I think it's taken me, you know, I thought, oh, well, once I get a really prestigious law degree, then I'll be okay to fail because I have this piece of paper that says that I don't suck, but <laughs> it, it, it's more confirming, right? You like have higher opportunity costs. A lot of it has to do with like other people too. You know, you're afraid to fail because it's like other people, what other people might perceive. And at the end of the day, they don't care that you failed. I, I distinctly remember um, being at a law firm. My dad was a lawyer. I was at a law firm that was a really prestigious law firm. And I remember thinking, I fucking hate this job. I can't stand this job. But what is my dad going to say? when I quit, he's going to be livid. Um, and he was livid. <laughs> we didn't speak for a year after, but I, I, I distinctly remember looking at partner, you know, law firm is very easy because it's very hierarchical and you can see what your path is going to look like down the, down the road. It's, it's easy. You know, you can see what a 40 year old partner's life looks like. Oh yeah. And I distinctly remember thinking when I'm 40, my dad's going to die and I'll be a partner at a law firm making a million dollars a year, 50 pounds overweight, like all these guys are. And I'm going to be miserable. My dad will die and I'll be a 40 year old trying to figure out what I can now. What do I do with my life? Because the only reason that I was here was to not disappoint my father. He's dead now. So so now what? You know, now what am I supposed to do? And it was that thought that like, he's going to die one day, not in a macabre, you know, I don't hope that he dies, but he will die. And every decision that I make, hoping that it gets my dad's approval or hoping to avoid a fight with him, right, was ultimately, I, I'm, I'm glad that I reset, you know, I went from making 180 grand a year as a lawyer to zero as an entrepreneur. And I'm glad that I reset that clock as a 26 year old, instead of as a 42 year old. Yep. And um, and so my advice is to not take advice. <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Good advice. It's good. No, I, I mean, not being afraid to fail for yourself. I mean, I think failure is the, the, how you learn the fastest and the best way, you know? And, and, and I think that taking, you know, being methodical about what you might fail at, like not going completely all in on the first thing that you know nothing about is probably a decent idea. But at the same time, if you want to, you know, you're more than welcome to because going broke might be the best lesson you've ever learned. And yeah. so, I, you know, again, I'm giving it, I, give, I'm, I guess I'm partially giving advice right now and then I'm taking it back because I'm like, do whatever you want. Just channel your passion, your energy towards 
like you said, what you're most afraid to fail or, you know, what you're, what you're most excited about and, and see where it takes you. And don't worry about, you know, there's that old saying about like, you know, when you're, when you're in your twenties or thirties, like, you know, all you care about is, is what people think. And then as you age, you know, and you get into your sixties, you realize no one cared at all about, you know, no one's thinking, no one's thinking about, they're thinking about their own. They're thinking about your own, their own thing. Yeah. (laughs) So no one's even thinking about you. It's so (laughs) as soon as you realize that, you know, the faster you can kind of get over that, like, Hey, this is all okay. I remember just, one last, you know, dad story too. My, I remember when I graduated school, my dad kind of painted a picture. He said he knew a guy who could get me a job in government. Um, cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I loved real estate, but I didn't really know, you know, I didn't have a lot of connections to it. I didn't know what, what way to start. So it's like, yeah, I know a guy I can get you this government job, you know, and you'll start off making a good salary. And, and then, you know, when you, when you retire, you'll have this amazing government pension. And I remember <laughs> hearing him say those words and being like, and to him, it sounded like, you know, it's safe. So I'm getting my son into a safe situation. And for me, I was like, that's the last fucking thing I ever want to do. And so yeah. that opened my <laughs> eyes to what I didn't want to do. And it kind of helped h- carve that entrepreneurial path of like, okay, well, I know that that would be the last thing that I want to go towards. So let me try and forge my own path here. And, and again, at the beginning, it was like, you know, they're always kind of concerned about, you know, not safety, but like, are you doing the right things? Are you making enough money? Are you going to be able to live in you? And as long as, again, you're channeling the energy towards, you know, energy and passion toward a direction that has some upside, I think that you can take anything and grow it into a multi, multi million dollar opportunity or something that's going to take care of, you know, you and all your needs in the future. Um, And that's how I think I'd wrap it up really at the end of the day. I got nothing. I, I <laughs> second the wrap up. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for coming on here. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to um, doing some deals together in the future and, you know, staying in touch on, on everything we got going on. All right, bro. Appreciate the time. Let's go do some deals. Sounds good, man. See ya. All right, man. How are we going?